Hey there, welcome back to Find the Outside, the podcast. You are in for a treat because it's just Tim and I today. That's right. <laughs> so we're going to do a little reflecting. Hey, no, 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 not just a treat, a lime and orange donut. That's what we're going to have as a treat. That's our treat. That's our treat. That's our treat today. <laughs> oh, you suck so bad. I Listeners, <laughs> that was a friend move that Tim just did. I told him as I am on day five of a five-day fast um and he invited me to think about what i'm going to eat to break that fast which is the wrong direction for my mind and so i told him i had actually dreamt of eating a lime orange donut so sorry and so he just brought that back for my i did but you don't really like lime orange donuts it was just a dream let's stop talking about food okay what's completely you're right that wasn't kind of me i apologize (laughs) that's okay it might explain why uh listeners hear my stomach growl during this particular podcast so yes indeed it is not the roaring of a mythical dragon yes it is indeed just tuesday's hunger making its way into the pod although i actually kind of like the idea of my stomach being a roaring mythical dragon that works for me i'm into it i like it i like it cool okay anyway sorry i interrupted you as someone's my you know Well, this is what this podcast is, though. Can we just be frank? This is you and me in conversation. We're going to reflect a little bit about two podcasts we just had. But this is, you know, some viewers actually enjoy you and I chatting with each other. So that's what this podcast is. It's making a little bit of meaning from two of our podcast interviews. We had Tatiana on and uh, Rachel. That's right. Sinha talking about uh, their work specifically around gender and and pulling people in. And then we talked with Colleen and Mahmoud from Rio, South Africa. And we talked a lot about equity. Mm, I loved that pod. Yeah. Yeah. So good. And so uh, we're just here to chat a little bit and make, you know, of course, listeners heard them and I'm sure made their own sense, but this is you and I making sense of them a little bit together. Right. And just tying that into our general kind of what's going on in the world kind of stuff, right? Yeah. Awesome. Okay. I'll tell you what, one of the things that really struck me just as a way of getting us going. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it. Although I feel like both of those two people are colleagues of ours and, you know, both Colleen and Rachel, I've known since my mid twenties, mm-hmm. right? Known a long time. So I really consider them long-term colleagues in kind of like the effort towards building more equitable systems and structures in the world, you know, was that they had fundamentally different approaches. Right. Was that Rachel and Tatiana have really built their approach around this kind of cohort model of like Mm. connecting people together from multiple different backgrounds to create, they literally called the system sanctuary, to create sanctuaries where people who are attempting to get significant change done can come and meet and share ideas and find the courage and clarity to kind of accelerate the impact of that kind of work. And then, you know, listening to Colleen and Mahmoud, like how deep they are in the work, to hear them both talking about how, you know, the work is a day-to-day experience for them. It's waiting at the bus stop, you know, I think was the Colleen's experience, you know, it was one, one quote she said at one point. And just like two very different approaches to getting change done. And isn't it, I mean, and in some ways, it's really interesting to hear you say that because in some ways, what they're doing is, even though their approaches are really different, we're beginning to actually do the same thing, right? We're in day-to-day work with our clients. That has basically been our bread and butter. And we just launched a cohort where I would say for sure, people are experiencing sanctuary. Definitely. Right? I think for, so it's so interesting to me that, yes, I would agree that in some ways they're like kind of the 
on at some kind of spectrum, right? But I feel a little bit at the outside, we're beginning to walk with kind of both of those legs. And I've been really surprised, Tim, and I think we've probably talked about it on here, but it's worth saying like, I've been really surprised how much you and I, or I'll just maybe I'll speak for me, but I think it's true for you, have enjoyed this cohort and the capacity building of it. And like what it makes, like what bringing people together disparate people, like not even working on projects together, but like to bring them together as a code heart has been like so joyful in the last month or so. Yeah. I've really loved it. You know, and it's like running the cohort was one of the first times that I longed to be back in the room again. There are times when I felt like it would have been really useful if we'd been in the room. Strategically, we could have achieved more in the room, but there was something about the kind of like the quality of the people and the questions they were bringing and the freedom to really dive deep that happens outside of your immediate strategic or community or organizational context, you know, that's just been very, very refreshing. I think for us, we've been like, just like, you know, knee deep in, you know, walking through the day to day of attempting to get very large scale change done. Yeah, I would completely agree. I think it's been both refreshing and I think you and I have been more creative right? Like there's something about, you know, like, we'll just look at a design and be like, oh, what do we want to do? What are we interested in talking about? Right. Yeah. In a way that like doesn't have to respond to a client's need in that moment, which is a different kind of thinking. So I can feel a little bit more of my creative brain coming back online around design. And I'm really, really loving it. And I believe it will serve our kind of day-to-day clients, right? (laughs) Like as we try new things. And so It's been quite amazing and quite lovely. And I can certainly understand the allure of what Rachel and Tatiana are doing, you know, like kind of in an ongoing way, convening people. I really liked talking to the two of them because I could feel my own evolution as they talked, right? So I started in feminist spaces in like really very focused on that point when I was in it with kind of cis women, but like really with this feminist political analysis, right? Right. And I think that's what they're trying to bring to systems change, which I would say is like one of the things that has been up for me for years. And so I could feel like some of their like, um, some of their language and theory of change, I could find it really easily in myself and then see how like trying to apply it to a systems lens because they really, they really are quite different, frankly, right? The, The analysis that comes from that kind of feminism has to be translated into our spaces, right? It's not like a, an easy one. So I just really enjoyed hearing some of their analysis and some of their thinking and some of how they're bringing it into spaces. I thought their attention on the relational and collaboration was something I felt like in some ways was such a discovery for me as you and I were starting to work yeah. together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think such a discovery still for folks and and they're weaving them really well. And so it was just kind of fun. It was just kind of fun to like go like, oh, these are kindred folks. They are they have some of the same right. questions and are, you know, and some of the same conversations. Although I think it looks pretty different when you're in a, some directly applied work daily than when you're bringing cohorts together. But I really enjoyed that. Yeah. And so I just want, I mean, let, let's try something a little provocative here. I mean, it may be, mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's provocative. It might or not. I mean, it might just be like cuddling a teddy bear for all I know. But anyway, so <laughs> something like, I actually don't believe the cohort model is an effective standalone 
action towards change. Mm-hmm. So I don't, like, despite saying how much I enjoy it, despite saying how much it centers relationship, despite saying how much it builds connection across differing areas of action, you know, how, how it may lend strength to movement building, all of that kind of stuff. Like I see all of that, but I, you, you know, it doesn't feel to me like, I, I think there's been a lot of emphasis on the relational side of change work, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it continues to center that. And I think what I found really compelling about when talking with Colleen and Mahmoud was this kind of like, well, it's the work all the time, every day. It's never not the work. Mm-hmm. It's never not the work. Yeah. And, you know, it's like when we talk about change, you know, we'll, we'll say networks are insufficient to get change done. Right, right. Because ultimately they're driven by self-interest. Mm-hmm. Right. They're not driven by shared work. They're not driven by an emergent shared purpose that ca- arises out of working together. They're not driven by relationships that are forged in the fire of getting real shit done. You know, so you can have, here's a word that has been going around my head around our cohort. You can have that effervescence mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in a cohort. Yeah. Do you know that song, Slight Tangent, The Effervescing Elephant? No. By Sid Barrett? I don't. The effervescing, the effervescing elephant with lazy eyes and great big trunk. No. Would you send it to me? Absolutely brilliant. If we could put music on, I would. I will. I'll send it to you. It's a great, really, really fun tune. But you have that kind of effervescent quality to these cohorts. Mm-hmm. People just come together and it's like... It's, it's, but I'm not sure it's an actual tool for systemic change. It may, it may be an enabler. It may be an amplifier. It may be an accelerator. And I think it may be an invaluable part of what is happening globally, these kind of situations of sanctuary. Do you know what I mean? It's an important part of the fabric of how change works gets done. But I think earlier on in my career, I actually believed it was a vehicle for change. And I don't believe that anymore. Yeah. Well, I, I love that you just said it. I think that's incredibly provocative. Not like hugging a teddy bear then? No. And not mentioning food to your fasting. <laughs> <laughs> Not that level of provocative, but uh, I would agree. And I would also say that that is for me a shift. And I love the way you put it. It might be an enabler. I, you know, like the the thing as you were talking that occurred to me is like, what well, I think what, what I'm learning with Brona and Gabe around a theory of change versus a theory of transformation. And like that a theory of transformation, I think of it as like, and they can probably tell you I'm wrong, but as I'm understanding it now, right? Like multiple efforts, right? Going in the same direction, which is how we describe shared work, right? Multiple efforts going in the same direction. So I can feel cohorts as a particular part of that weave. Yeah. Right. It's that's helpful and great. And, um, mm. and yeah, I just kind of, I, I guess I've, I've, we've, been in enough work where relationship is necessary but insufficient. Yeah, you know we do need these sanctuaries to d- drop into, and they do they do enable. I love that was great. They do make so much possible, but yeah, I think they've got to be part of a bigger braid to actually get the change done. I think that that's you know I love that. All fine, Tim. We won't just go run cohorts. Although I love our cohort members too. Oh no, I love it. I absolutely yeah. totally adore yeah it. yeah. You know, I totally adore it. I think the other thing that struck me has really stayed with me from the conversation with Colleen and uh, Mahmoud was this kind of like reframing around truth and reconciliation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like it really struck me, especially coming from Canada. You know, every week there are fresh graves <sighs> discovered at the sites of residential schools where there's, you know, the language is one of truth and reconciliation. And, you know, South Africa being further along that journey. If, I mean, I'm not sure it's a, anyway, but uh, I'm not sure it's a yeah. comparative thing, but 
both being very disillusioned by this mm-hmm. idea of truth and reconciliation. Mm-hmm. And we ended up, after the call with Colleen and Mahmoud, we ended up raising it with a client in one of the client contexts we were working mm-hmm. with as well, didn't we? You know, And it really was, was provocative and resonated there in terms of how might they approach some of the historical oppression that is just embedded within the organizational culture mm-hmm. and fabric. You know, And I'm not sure if I'm quoting Colleen correctly here so but it wasn't about truth and reconciliation it was about that the focus was a lot more into like see it clearly and then do something about it yeah yeah was it recognition or just oh i'm not gonna something like that it's like it's like give back the shit you stole from people as a result of your colonial actions Mm -hmm. just give it back Mm -hmm. you know what i mean like you know which england is you know successfully sidestepping consistently just as a side note here Mm -hmm. you and i were chatting about that the other day so like there's redress in that yeah that's right you know reparations there's redress in that Mm -hmm. so there's something quite tangible about like this idea of like of like whether i'm upset i can't remember it but recognition and recognition and redress say it is that but there's something very active in what she was saying Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't just about like surfacing the truth and, fi- you know, and reconciling with each other, right? It was actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I felt like they were, uh, and I want to go back to this thing about England because I think, uh, but I felt like they were kind of, I would just describe them as like clear eyed pragmatists, both of them. My gosh, so much so. But very, very different. I mean, I enjoyed them so much, but but they were so different and yet they looked at things clearly and then went for them. And so I'm just really interested in, obviously that's, you know, a huge attractor for you and I, like we we love to like see the picture and do something about it. I want to go back to um, this kind of comment you made about England, because one the, one of the, one of the things that struck me from Colleen and Mahmoud's interview was, you know, there's so much in South Africa and South African exceptionalism. And she kind of just said that as a throwaway, like the way we view ourselves as this kind of exceptional, right, country that is doing these things and the sense of exceptionalism actually gets in the way. And I was cracking up because I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm so North American focused. I mean, like I hear and think about American exceptionalism all the time. Mm. I never think of South African exceptionalism, no. right? I just don't, like, it's just not a concept in my head. But then you and I were actually having a conversation recently about why Britain is not giving back right. museum artifacts when across Europe, that is the trend, right? To give artifacts yeah. back to colonized lands. And I'm thinking that probably has something to do with British exceptionalism. Oh, and I'm really, right? So I just like, I'm just really interested in this idea we have as ourselves as exceptional. And I'd love you to talk more about that because I think people Mm. want to hear about our cultural context too. And that's something you bring. Mm. And how come everyone can't be exceptional? And yet we've just named three countries (laughs) that we were on a phone call that we hold this idea of exceptionalism. Mm. Like, I'm just really interested what that dynamic is. Like everyone can't be the exceptional country. And yet all three of us somehow think we are. Mm. Well, there's some, look, I mean, in danger of becoming overly philosophical, but there's, there's something about well, maybe maybe it's that truth of commonality and truth of difference tension. Mm, say more. Well, you know, this idea that like, well, yeah, we are all exceptional. Mm-hmm. The historical context is unique. Mm-hmm. Do, do you know what I mean? The, the, the culture that is born of the land you are on mm-hmm. or have moved into <laughs> is going to be unique. And so there is, there is exceptionalism by its nature, like we're all different. And yet underneath that, there, there do seem to be some like basic truths, truths 
Mm-hmm. And I'm no scientist, so I'll say it this way, that in my gut, it just feels dodgy when you sidestep. And so when you think that a castle in Wales has more artifacts in it than the National Museum in New Delhi, right? Powys Castle. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's fucked. Right. And this article I sent you, because I sent Tim an article from the New York Times, this article I sent you said that, well, there's a lot of silence around it, right? So that's the predominant tactic is just being quiet about it. Quiet or go away. That's a predominant British tactic in general. You know, it never, it never happened if we didn't talk. We're just going to be, we're just going to stay polite. If we stay polite, everything's fine. <laughs> but the article was, was saying that the kind of stance beyond silence is like, no, we've got a great relationship with these countries. We don't have to give anything back. Right, like, like there's some uh, assertion of good relationship in post-colonization, right, that is part of the country's narrative, right, mm. that then completely denies any kind of, well, well, recognition, reparation, or redress, right? Yeah. Let alone truth and reconciliation, right? That there's like this, this narrative of we are viewed well by those we colonize, therefore... We don't have to be accountable to it. And it, look, you know, we're talking about Britain right now, but oh my goodness. Well, I mean, well, let's, let's go there. First of all, it's like, it's just not true. You are not viewed well across. Right. <laughs> well, sure. There's that. The Indian continent, for example. Like you're not viewed well, even if you think you are, even if your history classes told you you were. Even you, even if you think it's all fucking gin and tonics and croquet on the lawn and that was the Raj, you know, like, right. like not viewed well. And there's a great, I'm literally just starting to read a fantastic book called The Anarchy, which is a, a book by William Dalrymple that's a, it's essentially a history of the East India Company. And I'm, I'm interested in it for lots and lots of reasons, including my own family history and my, my own family relationships into the East India Company and the tea trade and all kinds of stuff. But, you know, there, I, I feel like there are historians now who are really sincerely beginning to tackle, mm-hmm. like telling this history actually in a more full way. Like we weren't taught any of that in school. We were still taught the perspective of the, I mean, essentially the civilizer, the savior and civilizer. You know, you're still taught that perspective. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. I think European countries have become very adept at not recognizing and building into their own narratives the atrocities that they have been part of through their history and centering other things to avoid actually talking about their own history. So the prominence of the Nazi Germany genocide of 6 million Jewish people is given enormous prominence in mm-hmm. kind of European mm-hmm. history. It's almost like every school we're taught. I, I was shown videos of troops entering concentration camps as a kid, you know? I wasn't shown videos of the Boer concentration camps. Right. In the Boer War, you know? wasn't shown videos of the millions of people who starved in famines. Right. In India, as a result of decisions made by five people in a boardroom in London who had never been to India because it was colonized by a corporation whose only obligation was to its shareholders and to its profit. I know. East India Company had a larger army than the than the country of England. I think there's some very adept control of narrative that takes yes. place. Yes. Thank you for saying that word control, because it's not adept like, oh, you know, adaptive, adapt. It's like actually a, a strategy. Yeah, I would. And, and there's records of it being a strategy. Right. And I just want to say, and again, probably provocative, but it's it's when we are recording Monday, February 28th, we're seeing this in the Ukraine, right? Mm. We're seeing a control of the narrative, right? Around where sympathy lo- guys go- goes, 
what's being reported around Latin and Black and African people trying to also get out of the Ukraine. Right. Where I'm seeing that is in leftist work. I'm not seeing that in the mainstream. Mm. So the sympathy for the Ukraine is for white Ukrainians. And we're not looking at the countries in Europe who are not taking people from the Ukraine if they are people of color. Mm. Yeah, I just read something about that this morning. So instead, we're going to say, oh, look at how the surrounding countries took in Ukrainians unless they were people of color. Right. And so, like, again, you see this, you see in real time a creation of a narrative that dis completely disavows racism mm. as if it doesn't exist, mm. completely puts Europe or certain countries as helpers of other white folks. Mm. So it's just like you just you can just see it playing out real time. Look, I'm super happy those countries are taking in Ukrainians. That's not, that's not the, that's not, it's just the, the amount of silence in the news about people of color not being able to get out. It's just, it's just kind of like, it's not shocking. I mean, it's, a, but it's like, let's, t let's dig into silence a little bit. Oh yeah. Partly because it's so cultural to me, mm. right? That actually like, like, you know, silence is a coping strategy. So just like really personal stories for my family, right? So my mum. When she was six years old, she was in hospital for scarlet fever for six months. While she was in hospital, her mother died of breast cancer. Oh, oh my God. So she comes back home and my grandfather is like, your mum's dead and never talked to her about it again. Like it wasn't the topic of conversation. My mum only found out where her mother was buried in her mid forties. Oh my goodness. Wow. Right. Cause it's just like, that's you, you you get on with it. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? Like if you don't talk about it, it kind of like, you don't have to deal with it. Mm -hmm. I can't speak for other cultures, but I can say in British culture, if it, there's a tendency towards silence and maintaining polite relationship, you know, at least in the culture I was raised in, in my family. And I feel like you can speak fairly well <laughs> about that culture. And I just want to like, I want to push a little bit because I think um, in some ways what you describe is a culture not to feel hard things or recognize hard things, I would suggest that the silence of suppression is slightly different, is slightly that to, maybe we're talking about a spectrum here, right? Yeah, there's yeah. This, this, uh, but there's something about suppression that silence, you know, like we've seen over and over and over, you and I have seen over and over, those in power just choosing not to respond. Mm. That that silence is its own form of suppression. It's not even like... Yeah, in our work, you mean. Right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's not like it's just like, oh, uncomfortable. I don't want to deal with it. Although I think that that's really true. And I think that that's probably, it sounds like really epitomized in British culture, but I think we can find it many, many, many other places. And I think silence as an actual tool of suppression is also the case. Yeah. Right. So I think it's a, it's like a spectrum thing and, and, and every culture has it. And it's just, it's just, we're just watching it. And it's so, 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 to go back to those two sets of guests we had, I think part of what we can say is happening, them, Rio, South Africa, with Kalina Mahmoud and Tatiana and Rachel Sinha, the system sanctuary, like, I think part of what they're doing with their different theories of change is there something about not allowing silence. Oh, that's lovely. Right? Just not allowing that to happen. Bringing people together to share stories and, and support and to name how they're experiencing gendered oppression or racial oppression and then getting to work, right? So like we were not ever going to deny, there was no denial of, <laughs> I just, I think, you know, I just love calling, there's no denial about how tough things were there no. or that they were doing this amazing work that was just changing the world. They're like, we're just doing what we can here, right? 
in the best way we know how. Yeah. Yeah. With what's right in front of us. Mm -hmm. I want to be careful about a generalization on British culture, knowing that I come from a particular class and a particular race and a particular. So just just for anyone listening, it's not my fucking culture. I come from a completely different context than Tim. Yes, you do. You're talking about (laughs) the context I grew up in, right? And and, and that's a valid point. But I do want to go back to you and say that I, I, at least I have a hypothesis. Yeah. Let's hear it. That the behaviors that we see in in senior leaders mm-hmm. that you're talking about as suppression mm-hmm. i think they absolutely are patterned out in familial contexts as well oh yeah 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 mm-hmm. so it, it, yes it's an idea of a spectrum yes 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 you know and like you know would my mum who grew up with my grandfather have said that she felt oppressed and suppressed by him absolutely mm-hmm. no question yeah you know yeah yeah I mean, just like so many little stories, you know. Fractals, baby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like never, wouldn't, she wasn't ever allowed to buy jeans or wear jeans or anything like that. She had to make her own jeans. She had to go buy the material to go make them, you know. And uh, and so there's just all kinds of things like that. So I, t- I really feel like the, and I think we'll get into this more over this season and perhaps into next season as I begin to understand it better and kind of conduct this research that like so much of what we're seeing that plays out on the macro level in terms of leadership, I think actually is embedded within the families and cultures of people who have the default access to leadership positions. Yeah, I think, you know, I I think that that's true. And I think when I was working, which is just another cool thing and like hearing from Tatiana specifically, when I was working with uh, victims of domestic violence, right, there were only so many tactics that those who are abusive used Wow, and they use them because they worked. Right. Like, you know, the human beings were endlessly creative and endlessly cruel in some ways, but like we do things because they work. Yeah. So if they work in the family, they'll work in our organizations and they'll work in our systems. Right. And vice versa. Right. So these are things that actually like when I say work, there we go. They work. That's great. Toward, Thank you. Toward, yeah. Toward dominance. Yeah. They're not working for everybody, but for sure, for sure, for sure. We'd never expect. And I'm always suspicious although people are multifaceted. Well, even with your stories with your granddad, you can see that he was one way outside of the house and a different way inside, but with you. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? So people can people can be multifaceted, but you know, like you tend to be fairly, fairly similar in your behaviors, right? Across, like it's, it's it, you would never expect someone who was, I'm just gonna use these words, right? Abusive in their family to go and be like a super loving, supportive, kind boss, right? Like the, no. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I might have lost my point there. We can just keep going. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I mean, I think it's just like it for me. It's like there's a direct continuum. Yeah, I really, I'm, you know, I'm finding I believe that more and more. Like, I think it's very, very easy to objectify those who hold positions of the most senior power within our organisations, within our countries. You know, and I think there's something in the context that they are born into, that they are raised in. You know, many of these senior leaders who you know, and, and, and I just think that's worthy of investigation. I think it's worthy of investigation. I think, and I think, and I think we'll find in the patterns of the behavior of the families, you're going to see the patterns in the behaviors of the leaders. And, and so when you just, you said something really succinct there that just kind of like tied that continuum up for me. Yeah. It's good. I mean, it's good work. That's why, you know, like this is why I think just to kind of pull it back to shared work too, right. That's why the all levels all the time. Absolutely. Well, exactly. Right. Like it's why exactly, you know, like why we just like intervention into any level of, of our systems is going to be helpful. Yeah. Right. It's just 
because it's going to reverberate and it's going to have impact on the other levels. I was on the I was on the phone with uh, our mate Brona Gallagher, and she was Aww. yeah this morning, and she you know she had this lovely piece of language. She said you know this is a moment of world remaking that we're in. Mm. If you look at the pandemic, if you look at war, if you look at climate catastrophe, these are things that really begin to fundamentally start reshaping some of the context that we've taken for granted yeah. day to day. You know, and so. Uh, it's almost like, what's the next level of uncertainty we're going to be given? What's the next layer of unpredictability that's going to buff it into the sails of our little journey so while we're alive? Yeah, I love that world remaking, right. world remaking, world reimagining too, right? Okay, friend. Thanks for hanging out with us. Yeah. As we wandered down the uh, avenues of our mind to discover den- that dead ends in some places <laughs> and flourishing oases in others. Look at that. That's right. And lime, orange, donuts, and others. Mm-hmm. I didn't say that. You said that. You brought it up, not me. It's, I did, because I haven't forgotten. Oh, it's fine. I feel like I'm going <laughs> to That's okay. To wear that one for a while. That's all right. Tomorrow, I'm going to be well-fed and jolly. <laughs> <laughs> Take care, friends. Thank you. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.